0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Financial Independence Podcast, the podcast that gets inside the brains of some of the best and brightest in personal finance to find out how they achieved financial independence. Today, I have another podcast takeover episode for you, and this time it is from The Fi Show. And if you're not familiar with The Fi Show, it is a weekly financial independence podcast, which... Blows my mind considering that I can barely get an episode out once every like three or four months. But they are putting out a weekly show, and as you'll be able to hear from this podcast takeover, it is really well produced and edited very nicely. And the file that Cody sent me was just perfectly edited already, so all I had to do was just drop it in, which is much appreciated. And yeah, it sounds great, and they've removed all the fluff, so it's just a very impactful episode. And I think you're going to like it a lot because it's it's contrasting two different types of paths to phi. So the normal you know career working corporate life path to fi that i took and comparing and contrasting that to an entrepreneurial path and so it's a great discussion that offers great advice for people on either path to financial independence either the corporate world or the entrepreneurial world and i hope you enjoy it so thanks again to cody and justin for putting this together specifically for the mad scientist audience i must add so without further delay this is the fi show with cody berman and justin taylor take it away guys
1: Hello, Mad Scientist listeners. I am Cody Berman.
0: And I'm Justin Taylor.
1: And we are the hosts of The Fi Show. And Brandon invited us on this episode to talk about two different paths to fi. Justin and I have been friends for years. We both hit financial independence at pretty young ages, but we've taken completely different paths. And in this episode, we're going to kind of break that down from the expenses and saving side to the income front to investing and how our paths have been similar but also have been different and how you can take away a lot of the tools and tips we've used to hit financial independence decades before we knew it was possible. All right. So of the three I mentioned before, Justin, I mentioned expenses, income, and investing. Let's start with expenses because I feel that managing and controlling your expenses is probably the easiest first step for someone just getting started on their path to financial independence. So If you can remember back, maybe we can do a snapshot of when you first started and discovered FI to now, and we can maybe talk about how things have changed, but how have you reined in your expenses? And let's just go through category by category. I guess we can start with housing.
2: Yeah, Cody, and luckily for you, I have numbers on everything. I have numbers on every single thing I've spent since I started this journey back in 2015. And one quick snapshot number is kind of crazy is the numbers haven't actually changed all that much as far as on the savings Front. I mean, I guess should say on the spending front, the savings have changed a lot. But in that first year in 2015 into 2016, I averaged spending $1,738 total a month. And over the course of my entire journey, I've averaged just under $2,000 a month. So, really, over the totality of the journey, there's not been a ton of deviation. And I know for a lot of listeners, it can seem like every month there's this thing I didn't plan for that just kind of came out of the blue. But that's why, it's to me, it's so important to have like a lot of data because you can start to realize that what you see as noise actually kind of averages out pretty well to where every year you seem to have that same amount of random expenses for your car or for your house, and it just feels random in the moment. But when you look at a bigger picture, it's actually not all that crazy. But you ask about housing. So housing back then was very cheap. I had roommates. I was in Colorado, and my rent was... $400 $400 a month was what my rent was back then. Um, and actually, I think there was a time before I started tracking this where it was even cheaper. When I first moved to Colorado Springs as an Air Force officer, I think it was like 350 or something. But yeah, my rent was 400 bucks a month in Colorado Springs in 2015.
1: And what was your housing expense actually, Justin, at the time you hit financial independence?
2: Funny enough, my rent expense was actually less when I hit financial independence than even when I was getting started. Now, that was through... I would say a non-standard like period of events, but I think it is a really good example of a way that like, you can always be out there looking for something and being creative no matter what point in your journey you're in. And so I was only paying $275 a month for rent in Austin downtown, which sounds insane. But what happened was I had taken a little van that I converted into a camper van. I was going around the country We're popping through Austin, which is where my girlfriend is from surprising her mom, And they mentioned, hey, we got this little condo downtown. They bought it in the 80s. The people were about to move out after several years. We get to talking to them more, and we realize, hey, this property is being rented well below market value, and it needs a lot of work. We also realized that our time in Boston was probably coming to an end because all the friends I'd made were mostly military-related. Now that I wasn't in the military anymore, they were all moving, and we had no real reason to be there. So we decided, okay, okay. We could make this a win win. We can move to Austin. We can rent this place out for cost, which was the $550 total between the two of us. So $275 a person. And we'll redo this place with a small budget that they give us. We'll live in it for a year and then we'll put a renter in there at at least 50% more than what they were renting it before. So it could really be a win win where they get this asset that is growing and is getting a better month to month kind of income we get a really cheap place to live. And we get to kind of practice some of this kind of like a flip and kind of like property management. So it really all around, it was kind of a win-win. And that's just to me, a little example of how you can be creative when you're looking for housing.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize how impactful saving on your housing can be. You know, you're talking about a $400 housing expense and then a $275 housing expense. Imagine if you were spending $2,000 a month on housing, like a lot of people in Boston or big cities do. It is such a massive shift in the needle. So for me, I could have either, I was looking at potentially getting an apartment or buying a house and doing what's called house hacking, which many of you might be familiar with ended up choosing the latter after we could get into a whole other podcast about the whole process of buying that property. But me and my now fiance, Lauren, actually ended up moving into the basement unit of a three family. So there was two people on a split level duplex above us, both three bed, one bath. And we were living in the little one bed, one bath basement unit. They were all separated. So we weren't sharing rooms or anything. I know that's often a concern of people talking about house hacking but they were covering our mortgage and more. So at that point, we were making money. I think one side, right when we bought it. Let's see if I can remember the numbers. Once I was renting for 1,050, the other side was renting for 1,250. And our mortgage plus all expenses was like $1,600 a month. So we were actually making about $600 while we were living there. Power of house hacking. Ended up moving again. And when I actually hit financial independence, we had moved to a different house hack. We ended up buying this. Again, it's kind of a strange living situation. Like I feel like you saying that your situation in Austin is not standard. In my situation, I'm like, oh, it's not standard. But I think a lot of these not so standard things, like a lot of these weird opportunities come up in people's lives more than we like to account for. So we ended up buying this property and we had a one bed, one bath, little detached. It was almost like probably a shed in a previous life. It's like 600 square feet. But me and my fiance, Lauren, lived in that. We rented out the main building, which was a four bed, two bath attached to office space. That was bringing in $2,500 a month and our expenses were like $1,700 a month. So we're making now $800 a month on our housing expense. So, you know, obviously your situation is going to be different depending on where you are in the world, where you are in the country. But, you know, these are just two creative ways where Justin and I have now slashed our housing expense to a fraction of what our counterparts, like I have friends who are spending $2,000 a month in Boston, $3,000 a month in New York. It's insane what you can do once you eliminate housing, which is often the biggest expense that people face.
2: So housing is definitely one of the biggest expenses. But another huge expense is transportation. And I mean, as we're recording this episode, you know, gas is hitting these all time highs. And so it's definitely top of mind for a lot of people. Used cars have been selling for crazy rates recently. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about how we've kept our transportation costs low. I know for me, one tactic I would always use is actually buying cars in this, what I would consider like a sweet spot where maybe it's three, four years old, definitely less than a hundred thousand miles. Cause there's just some kind of mental barrier when you go to resell the car around a hundred thousand miles and keep it for say three years. And then you're able to sell it for essentially what you bought it for. If you bought it a good deal going into it, much like a lot of times people say, well, real estate You make your money when you buy the house. Like you got to get a good deal first. You definitely want to like do your research, find a good price, like don't be in a rush. But if you find something that say has 60,000 miles, you keep it for three years, sell it at 90,000, I've always had really good luck selling cars for almost exactly what I bought them for a lot of times exactly or more. Like I had a Pontiac G6, I had a Mustang, I had a lot of little like $1,500 trucks. Like I've had all kinds of stuff and I've always been able to sell them for exactly what I bought them for, or just a fraction less, which is totally different than if you bought, you know, a really loaded out expensive car. And that's another thing, like even with new cars, the difference in that resale value, you know, keep in mind that slippery slope of when you go look at a $40,000 car that can become a $70,000 car. If you add enough of the bells and whistles on it, but resale wise, that gap shrinks greatly. And really there's not this $30,000 gulf between you know, the more basic trim level and the higher-end trim level. How about you, Cuddy? What was kind of your car journey?
1: I have had the same car since I started my journey to financial independence as I have now while I'm recording this. It's a 2015 Nissan Frontier. It's completely paid off. And I think, honestly, it doesn't have to be you're driving a 1992 Toyota Corolla with 500,000 miles on it. Like I know a lot of people give the FI community flack thinking that you have to have like the most beat up car ever to you know be accepted and hit financial independence early. Honestly, if you're strategic about not buying a new car, that's going to put you in a ton of debt and you're going to have a really high interest rate loan or even worse, leasing a car with no ownership option those two things can really set you back. And I've had so many friends and family members who are paying four five, six, some in the $700 range per month, whether that's on a car payment or leasing a cool car that they're going to get rid of in a couple of years. So one thing I do want to stress is you can have a cool car down the road. You can go and buy that $100,000 Tesla. You can go and, you know, lease that Ferrari, but Getting those early years right, like those formative years where your money is compounding, you're just trying to maximize the gap between your income and your expenses. If you can do that well for, you know, even a couple years or a decade, you're going to be extremely wealthy at the other end of that road. So again, you can get the car later down the road, but being intentional about what you're driving during those formative years can really make a drastic impact.
2: And I can think I would be a perfect example of that because I did buy a brand new vehicle last year, full transparency, but I did that after I had already pushed several hundred thousand dollars past financial independence. It was something to where I still enjoy my job and I told myself, hey, I've got a really good paying job. I can either stop working or I can keep working and buy a few toys that I really want to have. So I bought me a new truck, probably going to buy me a pull behind camper Buy me a few things. I'm still being really smart about it. Like, I canvassed the entire country, found a dealership who was selling below invoice, which is crazy in this market. Bought something that I feel really good about the resale value. If I change my mind within a year or two, that I won't be underwater on it. Like, I still did my research. But, like Cody said, as you get a little deeper in there, by all means, like buy some of those things you don't necessarily need because you've already built that nest egg. You've built this machine that is kind of taking care of its own. It's making more money than you are. It is this runaway train. And once you've got that going, there's not really a lot you have to say no to.
1: So those are the big two everyone talks about, housing and transportation. And the reason why Justin and I focus so much on those two big categories is because those are fixed expenses, typically. So if you have a mortgage, if you have a car payment, or if you have a leased car, or you owe rent in your apartment, these fixed expenses are coming out whether you like it or not. Now we haven't gotten into you know where Justin and I like to spend our money, which is more on the experience side of things. The beauty of that is if we spend money on travel, if we spend money going out to eat, if we spend money at the bar, that could all be shut off next week like Justin and I could turn that dial to zero if we really wanted to if say you know we lost our job or some one of our income sources dried up, but you don't have that luxury when you have really high fixed expenses like that car payment that rent payment needs to come out no matter how well you did it on the income front so you know, Justin and I aren't just hermits not having any fun at all, but we're really intentional about those big fixed categories because that allows us to spend in the categories that we really cherish, the ones we really enjoy, like the food, like the travel, like the going out and hanging out with friends because that's what's important to us.
2: Yeah, Cody, travel was always one of my biggest expenses. I mean, a lot of times it was bigger than my housing costs. A lot of times it was bigger than my groceries and eating out combined. Like, Traveling was one of my biggest ones. And I think that's kind of the misconception. Like, we come into an episode like this, we have a lot of conversations with people, and we're talking about these ways that you can cut back and you can do these things that aren't typical, that aren't normal. And it immediately makes people think, okay, these guys are, like you said, Cody, hermits. They're not going to be a lot of fun. They're living a miserable life. They're forcing their way down this path, even though it's not really enjoyable. You know, it's just kind of like, hey, let's put off enjoyment for another day. But I think we both know that we've traveled a ton. We've seen and done a lot of things. I mean, back in 2019, I actually decided, you know what? I want to start like a Google Doc of everything I'm doing because I can't even keep up with it. When we do our podcast, we always intro and talk about what we did that weekend. And me and Cody always laugh because we literally can't even remember because we're just doing so many things. And so, for instance, I did a 10-day trip just in 2019. I did a 10-day trip to Hawaii, a seven-day trip to Colorado, Four day trip to Texas, a six day trip to Mexico, another trip to Texas, all kinds of concerts, stand up comedy, another trip to Colorado, a trip to Gatlinburg, a trip to Burlington, Vermont, another trip to DC for FinCon, another trip to Texas, UFC live events, trips back home, more concerts, another trip to Colorado. Like it just, this list is insane. It just keeps going, and keeps going. And this is all in one calendar year when so many people find themselves under so much pressure due to those fixed expenses that cody was talking about they don't let themselves even have a break and go off and do a vacation they can't even stop and let themselves think about a side hustle or they can't stop and think oh my goodness i could give up this day job because they have this anchor walking around with them that doesn't allow them to stop and be creative and be spontaneous so that's what we're trying to get at here is it's not about how do you chase zero from a spending perspective. It's how do you be efficient? Like how do you only spend money on things that matter and things you're gonna remember, things that make you a better person, make you healthier, whatever it might be, something that is actually adding value to your life. Do not skimp there. So it's not about chasing zero. It's just about cutting out things that don't matter.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Justin, but you know, to do all of these things, you do need to have income. So I think this is the perfect transition point to talk about how both of us were able to scale our income so much since we started our five journeys, you in the corporate world and me in entrepreneurship. So how did you do it? I know you've multiplied your income by multiples since you started this journey. What are the tips for the listeners out there?
2: Yeah, I've probably been able to multiply my income by over 5x since I started my journey. And I would say one big overarching theme of that, and I think is true for a lot of people is understanding kind of what's possible understanding what your worth is like i grew up in an area where it was like really low income no one had any money so when i thought okay going into the air force i'll be making forty something thousand dollars a year to me that was good money that was fine that was plenty of money and then all of a sudden i start realizing like oh okay like i can do this i can do that even within the military when you can't really control your pay i found out things like oh well these different locations pay a lot more And some of these locations that pay a lot more actually do have pretty affordable housing, which is why I chose Boston, for instance. Like I could have went to D.C., but finding an apartment as cheap as I did in Boston would have been way harder in D.C. that was actually a reasonable distance to where I'd be working. So I kind of did a little bit of geo-arbitrage within the Air Force. And then when I decided to get out of the Air Force, I was looking at the job market. I was looking at the city I was in, and I had a pretty good feeling that You know, I could make a good bit more than I was making the Air Force. But even then, I I know for a fact that I was short selling myself because after I got hired, I started realizing people around me are making more money. But that was another thing I did. Like I had open dialogues with coworkers and trying to understand what is it that they make? What is it that they're doing to get the pay that they have? And once I figured out what they're making, then I made sure that I could articulate the value I was bringing to my company and show, like, hey, I'm bringing in more revenue than anyone else on this team. I'm taking a more quota than anyone else on this team. And I know they're making more than me. So like, let's do something about it kind of thing. And I think that's a big recommendation. I'd always give people, if you feel underpaid, it's not enough just to think, oh, well, somebody else makes more money than me. Okay. That's fine. Are you doing more than they are? Are you bringing more value to the company? Cause it's not just busy work. Like you need to be able to articulate the value you're bringing to that company. And so, and then just fighting for that. And also, Understanding kind of how the business works, like for most companies, you've got these different levers you can pull and it's not just salary, there's equity, you know, there's these restricted stock units, there's things that they can pay you in that are a little easier for them. The rules aren't as strict about, they're not going to get reviewed as hard if they're paying this person a few more RSUs than they would be if they're paying that person like a good bit more in actual salary, like that's just going to hit more alarms for HR so just understanding how the business works is also another big part. And continuing to state your case, build your case, keep a win book if you want to, which is a thing I recommend a lot of people do. Anytime you do something where you feel like, hey, this situation wouldn't have been the same if I weren't here. Like I really changed something. It wasn't I was just doing my job. I, I did something outside of scope or I got really good feedback from an external partner or whatever it is. Like, just write that down because you'll forget. You'll forget all that and and get as many of the hard details as you can because those hard numbers, the scientific data means a lot more in those conversations. So that's really, for me, been the big part is understanding all the different sources of income and value you can extract from an organization or a company and then understanding how do you continue to state your case and show your value in order to ask for more.
1: I think something that would be really helpful for listeners that we talked about in a previous episode, I think was called how to level up your career, was how you're so open to networking and taking those calls. Because I feel like, you know, even though you're saying all these awesome things, someone listening might be in a company that doesn't offer these things and they might just be slamming their head against a glass ceiling and there's no room for raises and the company's budget is just too tight. So how are you keeping these conversations open and how do you think about, okay, this job or this career is going to be good for me?
2: Well, I think one thing is looking at what industries are really profitable and thinking about that from one angle. So whether you are in HR, you're in finance, you're an engineer, you're whatever, you could be that for a magazine company, or you could be that for a tech company. And you could be doing the exact same role, same expertise, same background. But things are probably going to be tighter for the magazine company because they're not making money. So they don't have money to pay the employees the way that tech company could. So that one thing is really industry alignment is is a big one that I would say. And then on top of that, like once you're in that industry and you start like connecting with folks on LinkedIn and start opening yourself up on LinkedIn so that recruiters can see that you are open for a new job. And then also understanding like how that process works. Like they're always going to try to get you to tell them your salary range. I would always push for it to go the other way, like where you make the recruiter tell you what the salary range is. Also protect your time as far as that goes, because you're going to get burnt out listening to a million offers if you're spending a lot of time on it. Make them tell you the salary range up front, and if it's not pretty close to where you want to be, then just skip that one. There'll be something else. Like Just be patient and skip that one. But if, if you try to listen to every single person who comes out and wants to hire you, it's it's going to get annoying. You're going to get burnt out. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to think, oh my goodness, all these companies pay terrible. But it's probably just because you're spending too much time on the the wrong kind of employer. So make sure that on LinkedIn, you've got your settings set up to where they can see that you are open for work, be firm and that you want them to give you the range and that if they don't get close to that range, then it's fine. You don't want to waste each other's time and then just continue to do that and you'll eventually get something that lines up and makes sense. And Cody, I know your situation is a little different. You did start out in the corporate world, but you didn't stay there. So kind of how has your income journey been and and what have you done to to kind of make sure that you're always trying to increase that income so you could have that bigger bigger gap between your expenses and your earnings?
1: Yeah, it's actually a fun thought exercise to think back. So I quit my corporate job in January of two thousand and nineteen. at the time, I was only making like twelve to fifteen hundred bucks a month, but I was being super frugal. And so that could basically cover my living expenses. I wasn't really saving anything, but I at least had enough cushion where I could just go and try it. So at the time, I was doing all what I like to call active income side hustles. So I was always trading my time for money on a linear basis. So I was doing freelance writing. I was building websites. I was doing some podcast editing. I was doing video editing. I was writing blog posts, like all of these things that they're transactional. It was awesome, really good experience. But you know, these weren't things that could really scale. Like I can only write so many blog posts. I can only edit so many podcasts. I can only build so many websites in a finite amount of time. So what's been the shift for me, the big shift for me, and for those who are listening, who are entrepreneurs listen carefully, is starting to focus more on passive income side hustles, more passive income businesses that you can scale. So maybe instead of freelance writing, I create an ebook about all of the awesome SEO strategies that I've learned freelance writing. And then I sell that ebook to other people who are just getting started out. create that ebook one time, I sell it to 1000 people or one person, and it's the same amount of effort. So once you start to think with scale in mind, how can you create how can you productize your knowledge? How can you create an ebook? How can you create an online course? How can you build something it could even be a blog post or a YouTube channel or a podcast? How can you build something that that content is going to continue to pay you dividends, even after you've kind of left it behind, you've started working on something else. So that's been the big shift for me is Yes, I started with all these active income side hustles and they allowed me to focus on the more passive income side hustles because let's face it, you know, anyone who's tried to build a blog or a YouTube channel or an online course, the sales don't come pouring in day one, unfortunately. But, you know, with a freelance writing gig, you're making money immediately, hopefully after that blog post is submitted. So, if you can do both at the same time and fund your passive income side hustles with your active income side hustles, you're going to put yourself in a really advantageous situation and eventually, if you want to, you can scale yourself out of those active income side hustles.
2: And it seems like a cool thing with that, Cody, is that you've kind of got the the two levers to pull where not only can you charge more for the product that you've created, the same way like we talk about like understanding your worth, but you can also reach more people. And that's like the other way that you can scale.
1: Yeah, because like someone who does consulting or one-on-one coaching, those types of things are great. And you can actually make a lot of money. Like we just had on our podcast, someone who made over seven figures last year doing coaching. But- with coaching, you're limited to the amount of hours in the day. I mean, if you're spending one-on-one sessions with someone and let's say they're an hour each, I mean, max, you want to do like 12 in a day. That's crazy. But if you have a course (laughs) teaching that exact same thing, maybe, you know, it's not as exclusive. So you charge a less for the course than you would for one-on-one coaching. But now you could have a thousand students go through that course. Whereas with the one-on-one coaching, you just, there's not the time in the day to do that. So, I just urge you who are listening, who are entrepreneurs, think with scale in mind, think how you can productize your knowledge so that instead of you know helping one-to-one, you can help one-to-many. All right, so Justin, for those listeners out there who have now figured out how to get their expenses to the lowest they're comfortable with, and they've scaled their income, now they have this huge gap between their expenses and their income, which leads us to investing. So what has your investing strategy been on the journey and past financial independence?
2: Yeah, for me, you know, I didn't go into it super confidently. I didn't have a lot of confidence going into investing. Again, growing up, no one around me invested. It just wasn't a thing. It was seen as kind of gambling, as money you couldn't afford to lose type thing. So that was the biggest hurdle for me, like getting my head wrapped around, lowering my expenses, thinking ways I could increase my income. That was all pretty straightforward. But getting the confidence to say, okay, I want to put my money in what to me seemed like a roulette table. That was really hard. And so what I did is kind of my little gateway drug is I actually opened up a Betterment account, like a robo-advisor type account, and let them do it for me to get started. And then I watched, and I watched what they're buying, and I watched what they're doing. And I started realizing these are actually just big index funds. These are just buckets of every company thrown into one, and it's just tracking the overall stock market. And then I started reading more and more people and realizing that that's not a bad thing. Like That makes a lot of sense but I could do it cheaper. I could do it for way less. So instead of paying a quarter of a percent, I could do it for even free on Fidelity if you wanted to use one of those kind of funds. And so that's kind of how I matured into doing it myself. I think another thing as far as sustainability, like if you're going to do this for a long time, which you need to be doing, even if your working careers are short, your investing careers are hopefully going to be, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. I think you got to be honest with yourself about your personality. Like, If you know that you've got that itch to invest in individual stocks, then do it, but set some hard rules. Like say, I'll only let myself do 5% of my total net worth into these individual stocks. If you're really interested in crypto, then do it. Like don't, I think it's much like a diet where you don't want to just completely say, I will never eat bread again, or I'll never eat this again. For most people, you then you just relapse and do something really bad. Let yourself have it, but just set some good guardrails Also keep in mind things like your vehicles that you have. You know, when I think about specifically like the companies I've worked for, if you got a match through your company, that to me should be your first thing you do. You should get that before you put any extra money towards any debts that you have. It's 100% returns. There's nothing else that's going to give you 100% returns right out of the gate. So get that matching money. Keep in mind that you don't get to make up and in the future, you put money in your 401k from your earnings you just don't get to like wake up one day in the future and say I'm I going to stuff that I want to backload it. You can always do that with your brokerage account. So if you want to put more money in your brokerage account later, go for it, but really think about those tax advantage accounts and and prioritize those early on. And if your company has like these unique investing vehicles like an employee stock purchase plan, a lot of people's company will have access to, really think about that. I mean, even if you don't want to hold on to the company stock, you want to stay really diversified and maybe buying an individual stock is scary to you. If somebody's coming with this ability to have a guaranteed 15% return, which is the way most ESPP plans essentially work, then I would really think strongly about doing that and putting the maximum amount of can in there. You can always sell it as soon as it matures and re-diversify yourself. How about you, Cody? What's kind of your investing strategy look like over the years?
1: So over the past few years, it's been a healthy balance of stocks and real estate. And we're not going to get into a whole episode on real estate. But again, it's about setting those guidelines. It's about having the rules. You can do a bunch of your own independent research. But I like to kind of just mix my money between index funds like Justin was talking about. I'm pretty much 100% in stocks. I'm 26 years old at the time of this recording. So I'm not going to need that money for a long time. So I'm like all in on equities. And it's just total stock market index funds. With whatever brokerage you invest in just total stock market index fund it basically like justin said tracks the entire u.s stock market which has some international exposure as well so i'm building up that nest egg that is mixed between all my different retirement accounts i have like a solo 401k an ira a regular brokerage account and then i have this other pool where i'm investing in real estate and the reason for that is you know while you have the what i like to call the nest egg approach to financial independence you can also cash flow your way to financial independence so If you're someone who's listening who's invested in real estate, you kind of know the power of cash flow in real estate. And so let's say your monthly expenses are $4,000 and you have $6,000 in net income from real estate. Even if you don't have any retirement savings, again, I'm not condoning this, I'm just saying for an example, even if you don't have any retirement savings and you're bringing in $6,000 consistently in net income with real estate, I mean, you're quote unquote financially independent there. So, what I've done, because I'm a little bit more conservative than the person in that scenario I just mentioned, is I've married the two. And so I have you know, some real estate, I have some stocks, and I'm just contributing month
2: over month to both. And I know one thing, Cody, that I would be remiss if I didn't talk about, especially being on this podcast with the Mad Scientist, is the mega backdoor. We've got a whole podcast on our own show about this, but... That's the cool thing about this space is it can be so simple, but there's always something fun to learn about that's kind of that next level that's trying to extract a little bit more value, doing a little bit more. So if you're curious, if you're getting a little bored with maybe investing and, and you do have a corporate job and you want to look into the mega backdoor, definitely look into that.
1: Or if you're like me, check out the Solo 401k because I've been having some real fun
2: with that over the past couple of years. But either way, you're looking at tens of thousands of dollars that you can put into tax sheltered accounts that maybe you've been told most of your life that you can't do, that it's only nineteen thousand five hundred or it's only twenty one thousand or whatever the year is, but maybe it's closer to sixty thousand. So Justin, let's round this thing out with the great
1: debate, corporate or entrepreneurship. I just I'd love to hear your perspective. I can give my perspective and you know obviously this is a just a friendly debate, but I think it'll be really fun for all the listeners out there.
2: Yeah, I definitely think it's a mixture of like what your strengths are, what your personality type is, what you're comfortable with, what you need. It's kind of like investing in stocks or the real estate. Like It's kind of hard to argue that you're probably going to be able to get there faster with real estate if you do it correctly and you do it well and you have an aptitude for it and you enjoy it because you can leverage money. Whereas normally you, it's harder to do that in the stock market, or at least it's harder to do that in a, a sane way <laughs> in the stock market. And I feel the same thing with kind of corporate versus entrepreneurship. Like I love the idea of entrepreneurship for me and my personality type and just kind of my personal growth, like coming out of college and into the workforce, I never knew anything about entrepreneurship. And so it was definitely it was later in life before I was introduced to it. I've always been much more comfortable with like, here's what you need to do go do that for a few hours. The paycheck is going to be there. And especially as I started figuring out, oh, okay, you could make some like real money. It's not like capping yourself out at $50,000 a year. I know, Cody, you could be the first one to to know this. Sometimes you have to kind of like pester me to make sure that, you know, I get our show notes done or like, hey, are you coming on like for the recording? And it's just... It's just kind of how I am. I need somebody telling me when and where to be. I'm not the most uh, self-driven person from a career perspective. So for me, it has always just pointed towards the corporate world, especially when I realized it doesn't have to be that long of a career. You know, it's not like you got to do it for 20, 30, 40 years. And that's the other thing to keep in mind. It's not a either I go out here and I start this six figure, seven figure blog or I work in a job that I hate for forty years. You could find a job that you enjoy that pays really well, and that you do it for like six years or whatever. There is somewhere in between. So I think that's probably the biggest thing is is when you're arguing between kind of corporate and entrepreneurship. Realize there's a good corporate career path that you can take.
1: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. So this is not much of a debate. I think it completely depends on your personality type, but. You know, as awesome, and I'm a huge proponent of entrepreneurship. I love building businesses, but as awesome as it is, it's scary too, because you jump out, you start some business. If you don't put the work in, if you don't have systems, if you just like want to take some time off, and again, you've been mainly focusing on active income, then you're not going to make anything, which is kind of terrifying. I know thinking back to when I was in corporate, like I could slide by some days. Maybe I didn't feel like working, maybe I was tired. I could slide by doing like an hour of real work. The rest of the time, I'm like <laughs> clicking through my emails, not really doing anything, but I'm still getting my full paycheck at the end of the week. With entrepreneurship, if you're putting an hour of real work in every day, that's gonna be real tough to pay the bills. So while there is a lot of upside with entrepreneurship and you know your income is literally uncapped It's all on you. Like nobody's telling you what to do. You can go in whatever direction. So you don't know if you're ever going in the right direction. It's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of failing and getting back up. Again, it's amazing. It's rewarding, but it's not for everyone because if you are super risk averse and you don't have the motivation to get stuff done on your own, then entrepreneurship is going to be real difficult.
2: And whether you are in the corporate world or you're doing entrepreneurship or you're making 30,000 or you're making 300,000, whatever it is, I think the other big thing I just want to try to put out there into the world is don't beat yourself up. Don't just compare yourself to the one person you heard on a podcast somewhere who was making some crazy amount of money, who had some kind of crazy success story. There's so many different ways to get here. These crazy stories always get more publicity and they seem really exciting. But you can have a very normal, sustainable, repeatable way to get to financial independence. And it's all about your journey. It's not about comparing yourself to someone else. The same way how in this space, we tried to not keep up with the Joneses from a a spending perspective and have the biggest, newest, nicest thing. You also don't have to have the craziest financial story where you've somehow figured out a business that's making millions of dollars. Like That's not required. So don't beat yourself up. You're going to be there so much faster than 99% of the people around you. If you're listening to a show like this, you're already so far ahead of the game.
1: Could not have said that better myself, Justin. And this episode has been a ton of fun. So just want to thank Brandon. Thank all of you Mad Scientist listeners for listening to us for the past 40 minutes. Two strangers that you may have never heard before. If you want more content like this, I hit financial independence at 25. Justin at 30. Again, you just heard our basically full stories But we have a weekly podcast called The Fi Show where we just dive into all things financial independence from income to expenses to investing and all these different amazing people who have reached financial independence in so many different ways. And you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now and on our website at thefishow.com. That's thefishow.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.
0: Hey, it's the Matt Scientist again. Huge thanks to Cody and Justin for putting that together. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure you go check out The Fi Show anywhere that podcasts are distributed, like wherever you're listening to this. Or as Cody said, you can go to thefyshow.com. So big thanks again to The Fi Show, and I'll see you in the next one.